Remember two Sundays ago, Nathan preached, uh, Assyria has taken Israel captive, and God promised protection on the nation, Judah, the southern kingdom. And he did. He miraculously delivered Judah from the, the hands of the Assyrians. This is the time period where Isaiah is writing, some 700 years before Jesus came. But as you read through the book of Isaiah and, and of course, the other prophets, and really the whole Old Testament, how amazingly, accurately, down to the smallest detail, the Old Testament predicts Jesus' coming, who he would be and what he would accomplish. Isaiah has many prophecies about Messiah. He calls him Messiah, the king, the branch, and we even saw last week the servant. And there's four servant songs. Isaiah often prophesied through song or poetry, which is why probably in your Bible a lot of Isaiah is offset because it's written poetically. Easier for us to remember poetry and verse and song, is it not? In fact, we help kids memorize scripture through song in our children's programs. I'm sure you learned maybe a camp song at Christian camp or heard a song in Sunday school that is still stuck in your head today. And sometimes it's the only way you can remember how to recite a verse if you get that song running in your head. The Old Testament prophets gave many clues about Messiah among them. Isaiah said he would be born of a virgin. Micah says he'd be born in Bethlehem. Prophet said he'd be from the line of David, from the tribe of Judah, and that he would be the deliverer of God's people. And so for hundreds of years, God's people were waiting for their Messiah, for their deliverer. And even though the scriptures are specific about what Messiah would be like, people had their own ideas about what they wanted him to be. When Jesus came and taught at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, they said everyone was astonished because nobody ever taught with that kind of authority. Jesus could say, you've heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard it written, but, but I say to you. And it's not this false confidence grounded in pride. It's grounded in his divinity. He can say such things and know with absolute certainty that they are true. So Jesus goes to teach in his hometown. Of course, they think he's just Joseph's son, some kid from some nowhere town in Israel. But word has spread of his miracles. He he performed miracles in nearby Capernaum. And so the leader of his local synagogue invited him to come teach. And they went through their worship service the way we 
have, and now they're waiting for the preaching of God's word, and he asks for the scroll of Isaiah. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. The section, Isaiah is a long book, so the section, the scroll, where he wanted to read, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written, and then everybody would be standing up as we did when we started our service this morning. And he reads from Isaiah 61 and inserts part of Isaiah 42.7. And I said last week, don't read your Bible this way. Jesus can do this. And in fact, scholars believe that this was common synagogue practice because they can't just flip into their Bible. They'd have to ask the attendant, go get this scroll, go get this scroll. And people knew their Bible so well, their Old Testament so well, that they would have known he had inserted part of Isaiah 42.7 into Isaiah 61.1 and 2. So he reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Now, even though Isaiah 61 is not one of the four servant songs in Isaiah, it is inextricably linked to the servant songs, which is why Jesus can insert one of the servant songs into Isaiah 61. The first servant song, and we looked at these last week, but just to recap, Isaiah 42 begins with, Behold, my servant, my elect one, in whom my soul delights. And then it connects to Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And we put those together, and we recognize in the New Testament when Jesus was baptized and came up out of the waters, the Holy Spirit came and rested upon him. Behold, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. In Isaiah 42, My elect one in whom my soul delights. A voice comes from heaven at Jesus' baptism. Behold, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, in whom I delight. And again at the transfiguration, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him, the voice of heaven proclaims. And as we continue to read the first servant song, we found the servant saying that he will not crush a broken or bruised reed and will not put out a dimly lit wick. In other words, those who are humble, those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, those who are crying out to God for mercy and just barely hanging on, he won't break them. He won't snuff out their light. He is a gentle servant. And he will restore sight to the blind. And literally, Jesus restored sight to, to many blind. But we understand this there is spiritual truth here. God using literal physical miracles to point to greater spiritual miracles that need to happen. 
In the second servant song, Isaiah 49, the servant says he will unify Israel. Judah and Israel will come back together and live in harmony. But he also says that the servant will be a light to the Gentiles, to the other nations. Speaking of a worldwide unity. Right, that one day every tribe, tongue, and nation will praise God together. In the third servant song, Isaiah 50, the call to repentance goes out. It's called to repentance to come to the light to both Gentile and Jew, but then a warning. If you try to make your own light, he says, you will only find judgment in the poetic uh, symbolism of a fire. If you try to light your own fire, if you try to create your own righteousness, if you try to create your own truth, you will only find judgment in, in the idea there that that fire will be used to consume you. So we arrive at the fourth servant song today, Isaiah 52 and 53. Really, Isaiah 53, the, the, the chapter should start at 52.13. You know your chapter breaks in your Bible are not inspired by God. They, they were put in afterwards. And sometimes where they were chosen to be placed um, could make us think that this section stops and the next section starts a new thought. But really Isaiah 53, the fourth servant song, um, begins in Isaiah 52, 13. But before I get there, I want to show you how the people react to Jesus' sermon. I mean, there should be a good reaction. He is God. It's got to be a good sermon. And yet, when you evaluate a sermon, it's human nature to evaluate the delivery or the deliverer and not the content. But the content is what's most important. You're preaching a message, it needs to be true. And so he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Remember, many of them know him as Joseph's son. Last week I kind of likened it to Nathan's first sermon from the pulpit. The analogy only goes so far. But what's he going to say? A bunch of you... Babysat him and watched him in nursery and Sunday school, his high school days. What's he going to say? What what text is he going to preach on? And interesting that Jesus would pick a messianic text. 
And so now they're waiting for him to explain to them how Messiah is going to come and fix all their problems and defeat Rome. Because that was the idea they already had in their head. Realize that when the preacher gets in the pulpit, he must understand that his audience already has an interpretation in their mind. And you have to anticipate that interpretation and counter it if it's false. This is what we do in discipleship. It's what we do in counseling. Find out what people are thinking. Let them talk. Let their heart come out. And then use the Bible to make correction, gently speaking truth in love. And so he reads a familiar passage and he says, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, and all were speaking well of him, and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? We know what he's saying. He's saying he's the Messiah, and we've heard of the miracles that he's performed. We've heard the rumors. Could it be? Could Messiah really be here after all these years? Is the end of oppression here? Will we finally be out from under Rome's thumb? Will we finally be out from under the thumb of the rich? It just depends on who's the audience and what their beef is with humanity. Every single person in that room had an idea of what God should be and what he should do. And at this point in, in the sermon, because Jesus is being somewhat ambiguous, he's allowing them to fill in the blanks. He's letting the line out. He's got him hooked. Is this not Joseph's son? I think they're even excited that, wow, the Messiah is from our village. I knew him. I mean, we get excited when somebody from Tehachapi makes good. I'm from Tehachapi. We love to name drop, right? This is the ultimate name dropping opportunity. I know Messiah. Ironically, that's in the reformed sense one of the most wonderful things you could ever get to say. I know Messiah. But this is not the sense that they were saying it. These are people who thought they needed a Savior from all their perceived oppression, not a Savior from their personal sin. So they were excited. Preachers love it when people are excited about their sermon. But Jesus is no man-pleaser. And he said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Right? If, if a physician says, I can heal you, I can fix all your problems, you'd want proof. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. We, we want to believe you are Messiah. Prove it. 
And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. This has always been the case. So now he's going to burst their bubble. And he needs to, out of love. Show them their need for a Savior. And he's going to use the illustration of the Israel we've been reading about in recent months. But they would know this history. They know their Old Testament. I say to you in truth that there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all of the land. Implied, why was there this great famine in the land? Why a drought? Because God was punishing Israel for their apostasy and idolatry, for their rejection of God. Their perceived problem was there's no food. The real problem was there's no food because God is punishing you for your disobedience and your apostasy and your idolatry. And yet God is still a God of mercy, but Elijah was sent to none of them, to none of the Israelites, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon. By the way, Sidon is where Jezebel was from. And at this time of Elijah, it was King Ahaz and Jezebel. Wicked, wicked rulers. One of the darkest periods in Israel's history. Elijah, the prophet, was sent to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. All the men in the synagogue would be furious about this. Yeah, not only did God send his prophet to someone who was not a Jew, but it was a woman and a widow. This is like bottom of the totem pole in their culture. Somebody completely destitute. You see the connection with the spiritual truth. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed. But only Naaman the Syrian. <gasps> they see what's going on here. Israel had rejected God, so God, to punish Israel in a very obvious way, sent his prophets to bless Gentiles. And not just any Gentile, in this case, a general of the opposing army. So they connect the dots, and now they understand that the sermon is a rebuke. It's a rebuke. He's going to set the captives free. Free from what? Free from your personal sin, your rejection of God. I'm going to give sight to the blind, not just literal blind, but spiritually blind people who can't see their own sins for what they are. And this is wonderful good news. It is good news. 
If you're in captivity and don't even know it, and you're blind and don't even know it, then the first thing that we would want to do is let you know you're in bondage to sin. And you can't free yourself. You are blind to your own blindness. The emperor is wearing no clothes in your house. And the emperor is you. Now, how do you think this message went over? Let's find out. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. Andy, has this ever happened to you? (laughs) nobody's wanted to throw me off a a cliff after a sermon maybe I'm not trying hard enough (laughs) but passing through their midst he went his way was not his time to die and not in that fashion you know speaking of God's sovereignty From this point on, we see many groups of people trying to kill Jesus. And they do end up killing him, but on his timetable. Completely sovereign over his own death. Nobody takes my life, I lay it down. And I take it back up again. They've been trying to kill him from this point forward. The one week they said we better not kill him is the week he said, oh, yes, you will. On this day, at this time, in this place, in this fashion. Is how sovereign our God is. We see people talking about what they want their funeral to look like. You're dead. Stop trying to control things. That is so sad. You're gone and you're still trying to control everything. And yet Jesus has that prerogative. This is how you'll do it. This is when you'll do it. This is where you'll do it. And the prophet said you'd put him in a rich man's tomb and he would raise himself in three days. And that's exactly what happened. If you're worshiping any... Other God than that, you have the wrong God. It's no God at all. Now, I have made people angry as a pastor, sometimes because of my own sin, and I ask for forgiveness and God's mercy for that. But other times, just for speaking truth in love. And I could tell you the two types of situations where people get angry. And you'll find this too as you witness to people and disciple people and share with people and lovingly confront one another in sin. Having to tell a self-righteous person that their righteousness will not get them into heaven makes people very angry. That's That's the... arrogant side of the pride coin, but the pride coin has two sides. 
And the other side is actually when I've seen people the angriest. It's the self-pity, I'm a victim side of the coin. And you see they're trapped in prison of their own making. And they think the solution is to get somebody in authority to go make the people in their lives that they're mad at do what they want them to do. Please don't come into my office and tell me to do that. You think the audacity there. Use your authority as a man of God to go call fire down on my bullies. But please come and say, will you hear my story and tell me what you see and what you hear? I think I'm missing something. The Bible tells me I'm blind to my own blindness. I have to do that. I have to go to people. We call it sanity check around the office. <laughs> Evaluate me. Tell me what you see. What, what am I missing about myself? Very difficult to tell a self-righteous victim, quote-unquote, that they are really the source of their own misery. Now, I know we live in a sin-saturated world full of tragedy. I'm not talking about that. We weep with those who weep when you experience loss and illness and devastation. But that's actually more rare than the case of the person who's labeled themselves the persistent victim. Everybody's out to get me. Nobody understands me. Everybody's conspiring against me. You have to kind of do that Nathan the prophet thing. Give them a little parable and tell them a story about somebody else, and they go, Well, that person's an idiot. They were just wrong. They're just doing that to themselves. Yeah, that's you. <laughs> you are that man. You are that woman. I'm that man. We all do this. In fact, I would say this is now the number one description of our fellow Americans. We are a nation of oppressed victims. This is what sells. This is what is preached. This is what gathers a crowd. This is what the two major candidates are both preaching in this presidential election. You're miserable, it's their fault, and I'll fix it. No, we're miserable, and it's your fault, and he's going to fix it. And the Bible says, you're miserable because it's your fault and God's going to fix it. And he has. But that doesn't, that doesn't play well. Jennifer showed me this quote the other day. Never before has a people so diligently recorded themselves accomplishing so little. Welcome to the land of Facebook. 
Well, I add to that, never before has a people so convinced themselves that they are victims. While our grandfathers and great-grandfathers stormed the beaches at Normandy facing almost certain death to fight real oppression and evil, our fellow countrymen are fighting over bathroom rights. Oh, God have mercy on us. This is it. This is what it's come down to. And people are going to put people in power to do something about it. And that's when the killing and the imprisonment and the oppression really begins. So we call this the therapeutic gospel, and I really want you to be on guard for it because we're all prone to chasing after the therapeutic gospel. God's my big therapist in the sky. Well, at least if he was a therapist like 50 years ago when the DSM actually had categories in it of this is wrong, this is abnormal, this needs to be fixed. But the new DSM is everything is just a condition you're born with and we need to learn to accommodate it and accept it. And... This is the gospel that's been preached in many a pulpit across our country. Whether it's in the form of the prosperity gospel, the emergent church, all truth is relative gospel. It all comes down to man wanting to define reality and define his own problems according to his own whims and then expecting God to agree with him and do something about it. And they like to say, well, that God of, of, of judgment, that's the Old Testament God, the New Testament God, he's this God of, of love and mercy, and he agrees with me, and, and he validates me, and he agrees with my self-diagnosis. And yet there isn't a difference between the two gods. That is a fallacy. It's one God who wrote the scriptures. In fact, I want to show you this. I want you to turn in your Bible to the, the clearest passage you could think of that describes Messiah, the God of the New Testament. Where would you go? Would you go to John 3.16? Maybe. Where, where, where would you go? I asked a trick question again. That's twice today. Because I actually want you to turn to Isaiah 53. The clearest picture in the Bible of the God of the New Testament. The clearest picture of Messiah, what he's like and what he will accomplish. And Israel should have known this. It's their scriptures. However, Israel didn't learn from its own history or its own scripture. The servant, the redeemer of Israel, would have to suffer to redeem his people from their sins. The, the scriptures are clear on this point. 
but nobody wanted Messiah to be a servant. This is an honor-shame society. Servants are not people that you look up to. Peter didn't want Jesus to wash his feet. Remember? While God, while Jesus, while Messiah was explaining that the Son of Man must be lifted up, he must die for his people's sins, and celebrating the Last Supper and saying, this is my body given for you and this is my blood shed for you, the very next thing they do is begin arguing over which disciple would be greatest in the kingdom. They had no category for humility. And so Jesus had to give them an object lesson and wrapped a towel around his waist and washed their feet. They needed a whole new category for Messiah. And yet it was there in the Old Testament. He is, he's a servant. So let's let the scriptures define Messiah for us. Isaiah 52:13 Behold my servant shall act wisely or in some translations will prosper. It's the same idea in the Hebrew. In fact, in the Hebrew mind, wisdom always prospers. If it if it wasn't wisdom, it wouldn't prosper. My servant shall act wisely. He will prosper in what he does. He will not fail. He will accomplish his goal. He will accomplish his task. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Boy, where did we hear that language? Isaiah 6. Right? We opened our service with Isaiah's vision of God on his throne and he says... He was high and lifted up. And now he's using the same language for the servant of God. This isn't just any servant. He's high, he's lifted up, he's exalted. You might say, that's redundant. Hebrews like to say things in threes when it's really important and it's the ultimate. God is holy, holy, holy. He'll be high, lifted up, exalted to the highest place, a servant, high, lifted up, and exalted. That doesn't make sense in the Jewish mind. Servants aren't high, lifted up, and exalted. Has that been your life's dream? I know in your fallenness, you want to be high, lifted up, and exalted. God says, be a servant then. Oh, wait a minute. It's not what I had in mind. I've got to be famous. I've got to be the best. I have to arrive. I have to get to the top of the corporate ladder. I have to be respected by men. Famous, rich. The servant will be high, lifted up, and exalted. And many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance in his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Now, this is really exploding our paradigm. This sounds like somebody who has been 
hideously disfigured, beaten, scourged, so disfigured that he doesn't look human anymore. Not that clean version of Jesus that we see on the crucifix. Oh, he's got the blood from his side, he's got the nails and the crown of thorns. But that doesn't do the picture justice. So I appreciate Mel Gibson's attempt in The Passion of Christ to depict this scene, but that falls short. I don't think we should try to depict it. It's so hideous and horrendous. It's beyond human imagination what was done to the servant of God. So shall he sprinkle or startle. Difficult translation in the Hebrew. Some of your Bibles say sprinkle, some say startle. Many nations, kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Theologians call our attention to this formula in the prophetic books when an announcement starts with the word behold. Behold. Heneh in the Hebrew. Zechariah 3 8. Now listen, Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you, indeed they are men who are a symbol for behold, I am going to bring in my servant, the branch. It's it's like an indicator that something about God and Messiah is coming. When you see, behold, my servant. Zechariah 6.12, Then say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch. So he's a servant and man. Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout and triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, Your king is coming to you. So he's a king. He's a man. He's a servant. He's a king. But then Isaiah 49. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion. Herald of good news, lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. Herald of good news, lift it up. Fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Messiah's servant, man, king, God. We saw the parallel between Isaiah 1 and Isaiah 52, 13. Behold, my servant, high and lifted up. This is language reserved for God. I love how God has revealed truth to us in a way that no person would ever attempt to do. I mean, if I wanted to know the truth about Messiah, I'd want it in a textbook, maybe an outline. The the way books were put me in college, science books, just lay it out for me. And yet, the truth is there, but you have to read, and you have to study, and you have to connect the dots and it's in poetry, and it's in stories, and it's in parables, and it's in psalms. 
and it's in wisdom literature, but you connect all the dots and it's so obviously, abundantly clear that a single author orchestrated this book. Messiah is king and servant? Who, who would make that up? Those are contradictory. I know we don't have a king anymore, so we don't think of... But everyone would know a king and a servant are com- two completely different offices, and they don't mix. And he's man and God. That doesn't jive. And yes, this is exactly who Messiah is. And we get to the Gospels that describe this Messiah to us. And Matthew describes him as a king. And Mark describes him as a servant. And Luke describes him as a man. And John describes him as I am. You can't orchestrate that on your own. I know we all believe 2 Timothy 3.16, all all Scripture is inspired by God. We know that's our doctrine, and then we actually see it on the pages of Scripture, and we're astonished. I mean, we shouldn't be because it's our doctrine, but it's like, wow, I know this is true, but look at that. Nobody would make up a man-God-servant-king. And it's not like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John got together and said, Hey, Matthew, why don't you focus on Jesus' kingship? And Mark, you, you do the servant angle. Luke, you're a doctor, so you do the man portion. And uh, we'll wait for John to get the God, the God part later. This is how God inspired them to do this. Without telling them this was what he was doing. And finally, how can God be just and merciful? Those things seem contradictory too. How do we have absolute justice for evil and then mercy at the same time? Who would make up that combination? Either you're just or you're merciful. If God just lets sin go unpunished, he's not just. But if he's completely just, we're doomed. But the problem is solved for us here. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be high and lifted up. Before his exaltation, his humiliation, but he was lifted high in his humiliation. Then we go on to read, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. That's how you get justice and mercy fulfilled. The God-man, the servant-king, will take our punishment on Himself so He can be just and merciful simultaneously. Psalm 22 
written 700 years before Christ died on the cross by King David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shared, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. It was all prophesied. Every detail. Paul understands this. Philippians 2, Have this mind among you yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled, he humiliated himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But he will be exalted. So shall he sprinkle or startle. The word in the Hebrew is is to spurt up, which could be talking about sprinkling, but... Sprinkling and spurting are, are, are two different ideas. And to keep the parallel going in the poem here, it makes more sense to say startled. That when he's exalted, the nations will be startled. You think they were astonished when he was on the cross. How could this be Messiah? Look at him. He's a wreck. He's hideous. He's disfigured. I can't even look anymore. But when he comes back, He will stop up the mouths of kings and they will be startled when the trump sounds and the sky rolls back as a scroll and the Son of Man comes in glory. Everyone will be startled. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. He was resurrected and given a glorious resurrection body. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. No more making up gods in your mind. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess This is the true God, the servant king, the God-man, the perfectly just and perfectly merciful God. What kind of God do we have? We have a God of truth. Be thankful that God is true and that he tells us the truth about ourselves, even if we don't want to hear it. Listen to him, trust him, believe him. Only then will you be astonished at the suffering servant who suffered for me.
Died he for me who caused him pain. But as long as you are going to walk around thinking, I'm a victim, I'm righteous, why isn't everyone doing what it is that I want them to do? Don't they see me suffering? You will never need Jesus. Oh, you'll want Him to to do your bidding. The great irony as we wrap up here is that for people who rejected the concept of Messiah as a servant, if we're honest with ourselves, it's exactly what we want God to be, our servant. Do this, do that. Be my yes man. Agree with me. My genie in a bottle. My cosmic vending machine. Of course I'm righteous. I don't need a savior. But I need somebody to do something about all these bullies out there who are making my life miserable. Beloved, we need a whole new perspective. That is not truth. That is not the real world. That is a fantasy world that our own sinful nature has conjured up. Submit to the Word of God. Submit to His truth. Submit to His diagnosis. And then receive the Savior. Be like Isaiah. Get a vision of the true God. Woe is me. I am undone. I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips living amongst a people of unclean lips. And then the Savior will take that coal from the altar and purify your mouth, purify your heart, and call you His own. And then we can learn to be a servant like Jesus. Father God, thank You so much for not sending us a Messiah that we wanted, but sending us the Messiah we needed. Help us to rightly see our situation so we will appreciate this amazing grace and stand in awe, astonished, startled at such a God who would humble himself becoming disfigured on a cross for our sake. Thank you, Lord. Be high and lifted up in our lives. We must decrease. You must increase. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.